we still continue to die, but what's left, right? And so people are afraid. They are avoiding the very real conversation that Black women are treated differently. Our motherhood is not valued. Our lives are not valued. Our children are not valued. This country spent years trying to control our reproductive organs through eugenics and making sure that we did not produce children. So now you want me to believe that the fact that I'm dying is just on me? I'm sorry, sir. (laughs) As the children say, no, ma'am. From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned, On Health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale-trained MD shares about all things women's health, from periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health. Join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome, everybody, to On the Big Letdown, a conversation about birth and breastfeeding with Kimberly Seals Allers. Before we jump in for this, what I know is going to be an amazing and exciting interview, I do want to just give a content warning. If you're pregnant, if you're trying to conceive, we will be talking about maternal mortality and also the impact of racism on maternal health. And I also just want to say that I'm going to be using the words woman, women, and pregnant women. If you identify in any other way and don't feel included in that language, I apologize. Please include the language of yourself in this conversation because this is a space that's open and safe for everyone. So my guest today, I'm so excited. New York Family Magazine has described my guest as that human. She speaks truth to power and is the mother that women, and more importantly, Black and Latina mothers, have in their corner. And I couldn't agree more. Kimberly Seals Allers is an award-winning journalist and author, international speaker, femtech founder, and a deeply committed advocate for maternal and infant health. A former senior editor at Essence and writer at Fortune magazine, she's a leading voice on the socio-cultural and racial complexities of birth, breastfeeding, and motherhood. Her fifth book, The Big Letdown, was published in 2017. The whole title, The Big Letdown, How Medicine, Big Business, and Feminism Undermine Breastfeeding. And in 2018, Kimberly was called one of the 21 leaders for the 21st century by Women's E-News for her media advocacy work for mothers and children. She's a frequent contributor to the New York Times, Washington Post, HuffPost, Slate, and others, and has appeared on Good Morning America, CNN, NPR, Anderson Cooper, and many other media outlets internationally and nationally. And she's even been included in the British Medical Journal, which happens to be my favorite medical journal, The Guardian, UK, Essence, and more. She's a graduate of New York University and Columbia University School of Journalism. She's not only the creator and co-founder of Black Breastfeeding Week, she's now combined her passions and is leveraging her vision for using technology to amplify community voices through the Earth app. And that is Earth as in birth with the B drop for bias. And true to the words of the great Maya Angelou, she does it all with passion and style. (music) 
Kimberly, welcome to On Health. I have to tell you, I am such a big fan of you, your boldness, your power, your positivity, even in speaking truth, your willingness to say it like it is, even when it's not popular, and your style. Girl, you bring it all. And I first learned of your work through the big letdown in 2017 and continue to follow all that you're doing. So thank you for taking the time to join me on the podcast. I'm excited about your story, what's on your mind, all the things. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. That was an amazing introduction. I was almost like, who is this person? (laughs) So (laughs) I am honored to be here and to have this conversation with you today. So even before the big letdown, which focused on breastfeeding politics, you wrote the Mocha Manual to Fabulous Pregnancy, a guidebook for Black women. And in that, you stated, just being a Black woman places you at a higher risk of poor birth outcomes. And at the root of it are the stresses of racism and the biased treatment you may receive. So that's a quote from your book. I've also heard you state in various interviews things like the unique social burdens Black women carry are literally impacting our wombs. So if you will, can you dive into, for those who are listening and not familiar, or those who want to hear your voice on it, even if they've heard some of these topics before, how birth disparities are impacting Black and Brown women, and if you're comfortable talking about it, how your experience becoming a Black mother influenced your work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, happy to talk about it. I think the first thing that I found very jarring, even in my own pregnancy experience. You know, as you mentioned, I was a journalist. So when I became pregnant, my first thing is research. Let me just research everything. You know, back then the internet was not what it is today. And as a journalist, I probably had access to more tools than the average person, right? You know, shout out to LexisNexis and anybody who remembers what that is. So, you know, I began, you know, doing a lot of research, perhaps over-researching myself. And quite frankly, I was clueless about racial disparities and birth outcomes. You know, as you mentioned, I was blessed to be educated. I was literally, you know, at Columbia Graduate School when I became pregnant. I was blessed to not be poor. And I just had no idea that none of these things were protective factors. In fact, what I know now and what I learned is that actually, you know, income and education are not protective factors for Black women as they are for white women. And so, in fact, a college-educated Black woman is still more likely to die or have a poor birth outcome than a white woman who has not completed high school. That is what the research shows. And so when I learned about that, I was petrified. I was just in disbelief. And more importantly, the answers that I saw at that time were unacceptable. You know, it was as if Black women were some sort of medical mystery. And there were very few researchers. Dr. Fleeta Mass Jackson at Emory was one of them. There was this burgeoning piece of research, not the robust knowledge that we have today. So I want to honor how far we've come in acknowledging what some researchers call the weathering process and the fact that literally you know, the experience of being a Black woman is, you know, wearing down on our bodies. And so we actually enter pregnancy in a less healthier state by many measures because of what our bodies endure in terms of the stresses, the ways that racism is impactful. I could write a whole other book about what I experienced as a Black woman at Fortune magazine at that time, right? So these were my stressful experiences, what it was like to me at NYU. Like I could go on and on and on, right? What is it like to be a Black woman journalist? So 
all of these things take a toll. And so we are entering pregnancy really in a less healthier state because of all these experiences, not to mention what my mother experienced in utero, who knows, and you know what I did to my children around what they experienced in my womb while I was living my life as a Black woman at Columbia University Graduate School. And so these are generational issues that have impact from the womb and are actually compounded by our lived experience. And so, you know, my very first book was my response to that. So I was immediately activated, you know, as a researcher, as a journalist, as a person who doesn't like for questions to be unanswered, real pet peeve of mine. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, well, there's no satisfactory answer to this question. And so what I really sought to do, and I think the Mocha Manual at the time was very unique because it really was the first of its kind book that was not from a medical perspective, but was asking the question, What are the lived experiences of Black women that may be impacting that? So talked about everything from, you know, being at your job and perhaps being the only one to your relationships, to your finances, to understanding ideas like the strong Black woman syndrome and the way that plays out in our responsibilities and expectations that come from our families and communities. All of these things play a part in what's happening to us in our outcomes, and then the pieces that we cannot control, which is how we're often treated within healthcare systems and by medical providers. And so all of this was happening to me, and I was deeply concerned that there was information that I needed that was not available to me, and so I wanted to create that for others. talk more about this concept of weathering. And it's a term that I have come across in the literature to understand, as you said, the impact of all of these factors, right? Like all the sociocultural factors of racism. You know, when you study midwifery, when you study obstetrics, the things that I've studied, I was a midwife first. My midwife mentors happened to have been Black midwives. So I saw things from a different lens. But when you study conventionally, you know, we hear things like, well, Black women are more likely to have hypertension. Black women are more likely to have diabetes. Black women are more likely to be overweight. And you start to get this sense that one, there's either something very wrong with the Black body if you don't know otherwise, or somehow Black women are actually doing something to not be good pregnant people and take care of themselves. Can you talk about this intersection of blaming black and brown bodies as if somehow black and brown bodies are inherently responsible and what's really happening? Well, I think first of all, I want to acknowledge, and I always say this to people, that white women have diabetes too. White women are overweight too, and they still survive childbirth. So let's not be clear that only black women in this country are hypertensive, overweight, or have diabetes. That is an American problem, not a black woman problem. (laughs) But yet, even in places where white women have very high levels of diabetes and overweight, they still have better birth outcomes. They don't die from pregnancy and childbirth. So I just want to level set there that we are not talking about things that are unique. But what has happened, to your point, is that the need to problematize Black women versus dealing with the very real systemic issues, right? It's very easy to blame somebody else, right? To have someone to point the finger to, to say that it's your fault, all these other things. And of course, if we look up the history in this country of the ways that Black people have been problematized, right? You know, it has been historic and that is the trajectory. Once, if you look at the history of this, when once Black women 
stopped having value to the economic system. Because you remember, our babies had value. They were laborers that we had value as feeders and breeders. And we were in many, in many ways protected because we had economic value to the capitalist system, which at that time was chattel slavery, right? When that changed and Black women no longer had economic value to the capitalist system, where we were not breeders and feeders and could not produce laborers, all of a sudden we became a problem, right? And I want everyone to really acknowledge the trajectory of this narrative because I've done the research, right? And so to understand, like, it was part of a plan to now problematize Black women, to make our children a problem, right? All of these things are not by happenstance. They are the product of a systemically racist system that has created a narrative to suit what it needs to suit, right? And so when we think about this idea of problematizing Black women, it's their fault, whatever. And then you look at you know, the fact that Serena Williams nearly died, it's like, well, that doesn't drive, right? We have one of the most famous celebrities in our world, a, a true goat, as they say in my book. And I remind folks that she was there with her white billionaire husband and still was ignored. So what are we doing there, right? Let's talk about Dr. Shalon Irving, an officer with the, with the CDC. The list of women who don't fit that story, there are too many of them for anyone to actually carry water in that story anymore. It just, it's a lot. It's been disproven by research. It's been proven by stories. We know that it has nothing to do with who you are, right? It has everything to do with how you're treated because of the color of your skin. And the research that has removed socioeconomics, has removed health, has removed all these things, we still continue to die. But what's left? Right. And so people are afraid. They are avoiding the very real conversation that black women are treated differently. Our motherhood is not valued. Our lives are not valued. Our children are not valued. This country spent years trying to control our reproductive organs through eugenics and making sure that we did not produce children. So now you want me to believe that the fact that I'm dying is just on me. I'm sorry, sir. <laughs> As the children say, no, ma'am. No, ma'am. So this is a lie. That's been told because it allows people to avoid the reality that people are not being treated the same way, even at the same place. And this is the truth that we need to come to grips with and to deal with. And the medical model is just a parallel model to the overall model we have in our society and culture. I mean, the history of racism in our culture is just mirrored exactly in the history of racism in medicine. Mic drop. Thank you on everything you just said. And I also want to point listeners to also authors like Loretta Ross, who's been on the podcast and her book, Reproductive Justice, because what we're talking about here, what Kimberly's talking about here, I mean, it's really deep, y'all, in the whole system of welfare and access to medical care. It is so deep. There's Harriet Washington's book on medical misogyny and medical racism. I hope everyone will really dig in and do some good reading because it's powerful. I would like, if you don't mind, just to name a few names. I mean, you mentioned Shalon Irving. One of my favorite quotes that I always come back to is data is stories with a soul. So there are so many women, Amber Rose Isaac, Shah Aja Washington. I think Dr. Shanice Wallace was a physician who said, I'm not well. And some people say, oh, maybe she wasn't heard. It wasn't that she wasn't heard. She was ignored, right? There's a difference between someone not hearing someone and someone ignoring. Right. 
and and what what part of that is intentional, right? And we see this all the time in our Earth Act reviews, where people are being dismissed, people are being ignored, people are uh, crying out in pain, and there's no humanity, right? And what's the story that was told about Black women and Black people? Going back to the medical piece, and I'll let you get to your question. No, no, Maybe please. It's it's much better. Was, um, wasn't it as early as what? As, I mean, as recent ago as 2016, 2017, where medical students still believe, quote unquote, research, and I'm using air quotes, that said Black people didn't feel pain yes. as Black people did. Like there was something in our skin that made... So again, the lies that have been perpetuated... Or, that- or the opposite, which is Black people are drug-seeking. Exactly. So right. I would, when I worked at the hospital... I had a number of patients when I was in internal medicine, because I did internal and family medicine, who were Black folks with sickle cell disease. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who don't know what sickle cell disease is, you can look that up. But I will say I have rarely ever seen humans in such excruciating pain when they're having a sickle crisis. And this is only Black humans. And this has often been a lifelong phenomenon, right? So these sickle crises recur. So people need morphine or opioids to treat it and become tolerant of it, not using it in between. And so I've had situations where I was in the hospital prescribing narcotics to someone in, I mean, it makes labor look like, you know, not Mm -hmm. so much. And nurses saying to me, oh, she or he is just drug seeking. And I'm like, WTF? Like, no. And this is repeated all the time in so many ways. But yes, the opposite, the, the kind of like there are these conflicting tropes, if you will, right? And then there's also the trope that I've seen happen in the hospital of the Black woman who speaks up, but then she's the loud Black woman. Mm-hmm. So then there's that too. And if you, and if you don't. Yes. I've also had women who have shared with me, I had Dr. Jess on the podcast, she's a psychiatrist in New York, saying that when she was pregnant, She felt like she had to kind of code switch, I guess is what you might say, where she would kind of getting her prenatal care as a black woman, Mm -hmm. she would start speaking in doctor language or recurrently saying that she was a physician to hopefully get heard better or treated with more respect. Was that something you found that you have had to do when you were pregnant or? Oh, absolutely. And not just when I was pregnant, but even as a parent taking my children to the doctor, the first thing I do is look at where they went to school. Like I'm looking for some sort of connection, some kind of way to validate. I often share how for when my children were young, I kept an outfit pressed at the back of my door because there was no way I was showing up to the hospital in sweatpants and a t-shirt. No you know, that that wasn't possible because I was going to be judged even if it was two o'clock in the morning and how we looked. So, you know, like I always had an outfit. It was ready to go. These are my emergency room clothes, you know, and you can't just walk in and be yourself. So, and I remember taking my son, he had an allergic reaction. We had to go to the hospital. You know, I was very worried about his care and I'm talking to the doctors. And I remember them coming back and asking me like, oh, what do you do? Are you a teacher or are you a lawyer? And, you know, we were talking because we couldn't figure out what you do. Well, how is that relevant to my son? Kid? I said, well, most importantly, I'm Michael's mom. Mm-hmm. But of course, like they're clueless. Like you're just telling on yourself that you're sitting around talking about me, mm-hmm. trying to figure out what works, because probably as a self-employed person, my insurance doesn't jive with who they think I am as a person, how I can express myself. But they, you know, people are living in boxes of stereotypes and they're trying to put you in a box, right? They don't, they just put you in the black box. And then that brings on a whole nother level of treatment. It's deeply 
scary, like what, you know, Black mothers go through, because it's not just about pregnancy and childbirth. It is about getting our children care. It is about being seen and heard when we are fighting for our children. And it continues in the spectrum. That trauma is very real, and I still experience it. just say this huge collective, I'm sorry on behalf of every physician that has ever mistreated you. And I am deeply grateful that you are here and continue to raise your voice. So there's all of this cultural phenomenon happening, this systemic racism that is weathering women, Black women and brown women. And then we know that 60% of maternal deaths are fully preventable with shifts that happen within the medical system and how medicine is practiced. So first, what is the intersection like? Obviously, we can't just fix medicine. We have to fix the culture. We have to fix society. Where are the inroads that can be made? And and maybe as part of that, can you talk about your Amazing Earth app and how that is contributing to some of this change? And I know accountability is an important piece. Changing bias is an important piece. What's all of the intersection here of how we make this shift. Yeah, thank you for asking. And I think that accountability is the on-road, right? It, it is the on-ramp because we've done all the trainings, right? They have they have been trained to death, but they're still killing people, right? And so what's what's been lacking from all of these processes is any accountability. And so when we, you know, I meet with hospitals and providers all the time, I'm like, hey, I'm so glad you did that training. Did you ever check back in with the community to see mm-hmm. whether that training improved their patient experience? that they are having that. When I meet with hospitals, they will tell me, oh, Kimberly, well, we haven't had a maternal death in five years, 10 years, as if killing us or not killing us is the goal, right? When they haven't had a death, they think that they are winning. And this is deeply troubling because when we've made the goal, mortality, reducing mortality, morbidity, then that means that one, hospital providers think that they deserve a, you know, a ticker tape parade when they haven't (laughs) killed anybody in five, 10 years. And when then I say to them, well, how many of those people have had a five-star experience? And I will settle for a four. Well, and this is like back to the idea that a healthy and mother, healthy baby is sort of this biological or physiologic response only as opposed to looking at the whole picture of what makes a human healthy. Absolutely. And what they really mean is surviving mother, surviving baby, because you're yes. at also has to deal with your emotional well-being. People are yes. walking out. Yes, they are technically alive, but they are traumatized. Is that healthy? I don't think so. And so, you know, how do we kind of change what that looks like? And I think in the the narrative of Black maternal health and mortality and morbidity, folks feel like that's the goal. And if they're not doing that, everything else is great and no. And so what we're really trying to do with Earth is raise the standard to say that Black birthing people deserve a five-star experience. And I will settle for a four, but I will come get you so we can work on getting to a five, right? First, we need to define what that five-star experience is by listening to the community. And then we need to hold folks accountable to it. And so that in a medical system, which measures everything, in hospitals, which measure everything, and they're counting everything, somehow when it comes to efforts to eradicate bias and racism, and care and practice in teams, you're allowed to believe that you just need to train in a way. And that's just not true. It is not true, um, especially in a system that really prides itself on measurement, 
and accountability and transparency. And so, except when it comes to this area. And so that is the movement that we are driving because I think that if we look at everything that we've done, we've done all the trainings, we've asked all the questions, but what we haven't done is held folks publicly accountable. Second piece of the on-ramp for me is looking at consumers, specifically black and brown birthing people, not as victims or recipients or you know the, the targets of this crisis, but as a powerful consumer force, I remind folks that I was in senior management, Essence Magazine, where I saw every day how powerful Black women are as a marketing block, right? How many people wanted to market to us and sell us things? So what if we understand the powerful block that Black women are as consumers, Black and brown folks are as consumers, and use that as a tool to move this industry that has proven itself to be slow to move. And let's be clear that our healthcare system is a commercial system and a for-profit system that is focused on cost and not on quality. Um, and so how do we understand what has moved other business industries, reminding folks I was a writer at Fortune Magazine for many years, and think about this tool as something we can do to help save more mothers and babies and for them to have more five-star experiences. I feel like we need to always look outside of our profession for answers. And I feel like there's so much that's happened, for example, in certain aspects of the hospitality movement, right? Like things that we would never be talked to in a hotel or in a restaurant by a concierge, the way a woman would be talked to, and especially a black or brown woman would be talked to. And we're not just talking about how people are talked to. I mean, there have been instances of slapping, verbal abuse. It really does get pretty scary and ugly. Right now in our national database, we have reviews from 48 states plus Hawaii, over 10,000 reviews. And the number the number one negative experience being reported on Earth right now is my request for help were ignored or refused. Number two is I was scolded, yelled at, or threatened. Number three is my pain levels were dismissed, which as we know is very common, but it's also a common thread in pretty much every maternal death story that we've heard about, right? Number four is my physical privacy was violated. Number five is experiencing comments based on racial stereotypes. Um, too many Black women being judged about their family size, how many children they have, how many children, the, the, the spacing of their children, being questioned about their marital status. And it is just all based on terrible stereotypes that people have turned into truth. And then that truth now comes and interferes with practice. So if we could unpack those, which I know you're doing, and sort of like reverse engineer those, what would be, say, five or seven, if you could say top checks on a five-star maternal health experience, not just the physical aspects, but this bigger picture that we would be looking for or hoping for hospitals and birthing environments to create? we really believe that all of this needs to be defined by the community, right? So when we work with hospital pilots, we have one in Detroit, one in Philly, we're signing on three hospitals in California, and we're about to work with a number of hospitals in New York City, which I'm excited about. We help them understand that you need hyperlocal information, like racism in New York City is not like racism in Birmingham, Alabama, which is not like racism in Sacramento, California. Let me tell you about that. And so understanding that 
you know, the first thing we have to do is figure out what matters to that community before we even begin to think about what that looks like on a big level. So what my vision is, is that this is what a five-star experience means in New York City. This is what it means in Birmingham. This is what it means in New Orleans. And this is what it means in LA. And because what we're seeing is like, it is very different, right? What people experience is different. And so how do we understand that some of that has local context and culture? And through that process, we may see what is the same, right? But right now, I am very committed to making sure that we keep this a hyper-local conversation first before we try to go big picture. Thank you for educating me and clarifying that. That is really informative and helpful. Mm -hmm. I have a quick question for you. It's just totally personal. So when I was going back to get my pre-med training, I already had four kids. I was a midwife and home birth midwife in Atlanta and going back to be a physician. And my son, who had homeschooled, was in college a couple of years early. So we did a whole year of physics in the same class at the same college. And I saw your story about your son helping you to create your first iteration of the app. I had to ask you about that. I think mamas will love hearing that story. Oh my goodness. You know, our children, as you know, our children are our greatest teachers. And I'm so grateful because my children have been my greatest teachers. Um, And my son is a very big math and science kid. He has been a math wizard and a coding person since he was a little, little boy. And that is not my side of the brain. I will reluctantly give his father credit. So, <laughs> and so every summer, you know, he want to go to these coding camps. They are not cheap. And I'd be working to try to save to send him to these coding camps. And, you know, Earth really began is when I had this idea, I really thought it could be a way for us to bridge our worlds because he had a language I didn't understand. You know, he's tired of me talking about breastfeeding, going to all my breastfeeding. <laughs> I know, I know. I my like, kids would be like, I'd be at the dinner table and a woman would call in labor and I'd be like, well, what color is it? And everyone at the dinner would be like, mom. <laughs> but I'm sure later on they knew what questions to ask. They were like, oh, did yeah. you ask this? They, they know the script. Oh, yeah. Um, and I tell folks, my son learned to count doing, um, you know, helping me at book events and, and giving people change. So he's been a part of this journey. And so I really was excited about sharing this idea with him and seeing that he could see that what he was actually excited about could have an application in my world and vice versa. So Earth really started as a mommy-son project. I shared with him this idea at the time NYU, where you shared that I went for undergrad, was offering free classes that were free to alum. And so he and I started going to these classes. He's probably 12 or 13 at the time. So, and you know, we were the only Black people there and I had the nerve to bring my 12-year-old. <laughs> and so he learned and he helped create the first wireframes for Earth. These were wireframes that we took to different contests. We would go together. We practiced our one-minute pitch and we had a thing. We had a, the word Earth and he held the B and he threw it away and we would just, you know, travel. And he went with me to the MIT Birth and Breastfeeding Hackathon, where we ultimately won a prize. And it was really that MIT Hackathon, those folks turned, you know, part of which was Michael's wireframes into our first prototype that allowed me to, you know, have something that I could go and get funding against and, and start to apply for grants. And, you know, Michael was there with me. He went up on stage for that pitch. And so he's been a big part of this process. He is interning for the app development team most summers. Last summer, he got a much better job and I couldn't afford him. But he's, <laughs> that's uh, amazing. <laughs> what a great story. I love that. That's really powerful. And I love just that intergenerational brain trust creating this amazing thing. 
Yes. And that my children have been a part of the solution, right? Like my experiences with them were part of kind of problem identification with my daughter and that my son has been a part of building a solution to a problem that I initially encountered giving birth to his sister is, you know, for me, a very full circle moment and brings me a lot of pride and joy. Powerful. Our son, our oldest of four, he, uh, ultimately went on to uh, get involved in healthcare and created an organization called City Block Health, which is based in New York. Do you know City Block? Absolutely. Okay. So my son is Aya, who created City Block. He's the founder. So based on the same concept you were enlightening me on earlier, that the solutions really do need to be hyper-local. I want to switch gears a little bit. It's an extension of the conversation, but you emphasize something so powerful and important And it seems to be something you're leaning even more into lately. I'm seeing it on your socials, which is that knowing the data, the statistics itself, the fact of these stark inequities that exist in reality can actually have a damaging effect on the psyches and in turn the health of Black women. So that all the things that racism causes are now compounded by almost the the knowing of it when you are pregnant or birthing or postpartum. And you've been doing this stunning work on your Instagram, you now have a phone number you can call that is focusing on power and strength and beauty. So my question is all the things, but, and you go with it where you want to, but the question is really, how do mamas and birth workers hold both realities at once? How do we face and address these dire consequences, right? Black women are now having to do more emotional labor of advocating when you shouldn't have to be doing that. But if you don't, you face the consequences. So how do we hold the joy, the power, maintain that so that there's not more fear, anxiety, adding to the trauma, adding to the hypertension, the preeclampsia and Mm -hmm. the outcomes? Yeah, I think it's important to remember that joy and pain can coexist, right? They, they wrote a song about it. It's quite popular in every Black party. And I think, you know, as a journalist and a storyteller myself, I understand that line between awareness raising, right? Very important. Unfortunately, in our kind of media system, you have to sensationalize and shock people. And now we have clickbait, internet, you know, dynamics, et cetera, et cetera. So I understand that need, but I think that there's a fine line between the awareness raising that needs to happen for people to respond and react and fear mongering, right? And what we found every day, almost, you know, certainly every week, we were getting these DMs at Earth on our social media platforms where people are asking questions like, do I need to write a will before I go into labor? Mm -hmm. And you know, men sending me these emails, I'm giving myself goosebumps recalling them. They're so in fear. And I'm like, this is not the goal, right? That we are in fear because actually being afraid is not helping your birth outcomes. It can actually become a self-fulfilling prophecy that now this fear is impacting your ability to have a positive birth outcome. That's not the goal. And so how do we not use fear as a tool? Like if that's a media strategy, I get that. But for our community, a community that has fear that where fear has been used to control them, that's how they got us here, right? Scaring us, right? That's why they lynched us in public to scare people. You know, like fear has been used as a tool to control. And to be clear, fear is being used to control women in birth across the board. But Black people have a unique history with fear and control in this country, certainly the violence that was used against us, right? And so understanding that, how do we do that without causing fear? in our community. Like, yes, we need to be aware, 
but stoking fear is actually not the direction we need to go in. And so I really wanted to shift that narrative or at least add to that narrative. How do we balance it off? And so I started the Birthright Podcast with grant funding with a specific mission to only tell positive Black birthing stories because I'm like, what if we could also learn from our joy, right? Like there's this idea that we have to learn from the trauma. We got to learn from the pain. We got to read about the deaths. And I'm like, well, people could also learn from what went well when someone had that. Who was there? Where were they? What did they do? So you could have that. It's not just learning from the deaths and the trauma and the pain porn, there is a possibility for people to learn from joy. And what I also found as I was talking to people was that people who had positive experiences felt silenced. They were afraid to speak up because they felt so lucky to have a positive experience, knowing what their sisters have experienced. They didn't want to even share it. It's like survivor guilt. Exactly. Exactly. I'm like, we can't have this. Right. And so things have gone well. And instead of you sharing your story, you're you're shamed by it. No, 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 no. So we have to find a way for these two truths to coexist because they are coexisting and they do coexist. And I would like to create another method of learning. And so not only have we been focused on telling these positive stories, Yes, to close out our season two, we launched the Black Birth Joy Line where people can call our number 855-5-GET-JOY and hear these clips of these powerful, joyful experiences, get them by text. But also I'm excited to share that very soon we will be launching an instructional uh, session for providers and hospitals and, in, and healthcare professionals all around to say, we listened in two seasons to 23 positive Black birthing stories, including the fathers and the others that we interviewed in those episodes. And what could we learn from listening to Black birthing joy? And so we'll be turning those transcripts, the analysis of those transcripts into something instructional. And that I am super excited about. And so we hope to get that out there uh, in February, March, as we're working on it now so that we can start a new way of thinking about how we improve things that is not just about a maternal mortality review board, but what about our maternal Black Joy review board? Like, I just made that up, but I'm excited about it. Oh my gosh, this gives me chills. So (laughs) beautiful. So for those who are joining us, listening, who want to be part of birth change, birth joy, birth activism, you're a busy mama. I know a lot of moms like, I know I want to do this, but I don't know how to get involved and I've got kids. What do you recommend? And what does your support network look like to keep it all going? That is a word. So what I recommend is to start small and maybe even starting local. Like, you know, it doesn't have to be everyone biting off, but, you know, what can you do? Is that as simple as you know, we have things where we need to write your congressman or can you sign a petition? You know, groups like Moms Rising, Chamber of Mothers, you know, there's some really great groups that are really working to push for the policies that can help all of us. So I would certainly ask folks to get involved there. And even if you can just sign a petition, even if you could, you know, have a letter sent to your local representative to speak for these issues, I think we all have to start locally. We know that federal government dynamics are I don't even have a word, Um, but maybe (laughs) we can start to push for things in our cities and states that now can, 
you know, start this movement upward while we are also continuing to work on things on a federal level. So I would say do that. You know, um, it's important for moms to use their voices for us to push for change. One of the things that saddens me is to see people who are like, well, I had to struggle, so you should struggle. And I never had paid leave and I had to go back to work. It's like, I'm so sorry that happened to you. You deserve better. Right. It's not for us to turn motherhood into the Olympics of oppression for each generation to now have it worse and to have the same struggles. Our vision and my vision, and I hope everybody's vision, is that we are improving that experience and that my children, you know, that my daughter and my daughter's daughter are not still having the same conversation that we are still having and that they are not still dying at the rates and they are not still saying I don't have time to be a mother and I don't have paid leave to nurse my baby and heal from childbirth, that can't be anything that anybody wants. About 10 years ago, I was giving a keynote. There were three of us giving keynotes at the Massachusetts Perinatal Association. And Eugene DeClerc, who's been a big advocate for maternal health and midwifery at Boston University, got up and he, he literally said in front of this entire audience of perinatal providers, I have failed you. And he said, I've been talking about this for 20 years and the statistics are worse. I think it's something really important to emphasize that just because we're seeing it talked about more every, you know, two weeks in the New York Times, it doesn't mean it's changing behind the scenes. So I practice as a midwife in Atlanta. Georgia has for decades had the highest maternal and infant mortality rates in the country. And it wasn't different than when I was there 30 years ago. And now I gave a talk last year to the legislature at lunch telling them, hey, this really hasn't changed in 30 years. And you've got answers here in the form of midwives to meet the needs of every county. But there are still these systemic, as you said, the federal government, but the state government obstacles are, they're tough. And we do need to keep reaching out and hounding and making the change. And again, there's, you know, there are the midwives who are still practicing illegally because that's the commitment to providing the access to care. Georgia has no maternal health in over 100 counties, no OB, no prenatal care, no midwives. And, you know, one of our episodes was talking to talking about these obstetric deserts in Georgia, an area, and it was talking about just the ratio to obstetricians to actual birthing people. Yes. And, you know, I mean amazing and disgusting at the same time. And so we have a very complex set of failures in our system across the board. Sometimes, you know, geographically, they listen, we're failing our rural communities in many ways. It's just, you know, untenable on many levels. So as a mama, and you're holding all this down, and I mean, I know what it takes to write a book and to get out there and speak and you're doing it as an independent mama, indie mama, single mama. What does that look like for you? Because I know that we can set expectations for ourselves, right? We have to have every single meal on the table. We have to have every home cooked food. We have to do all these things. And then we have these missions. And you're clearly a nurturing, committed, dedicated mom. And you also have a self to take care of. How do you hold it down? Well, I think a big part of it is I have included my children in that work, right? And so they knew, like for me, birth is the family business, right? And you can, and, and until you're able to do your own business, you're in the family business, right? And so I think for me, it was not to make that as a separate thing, but to always find ways to include my children so that they could see it 
so that they could be a part of it. You know, I get to go to amazing conferences. They have come with me to those places. Michael was at the USLC, the Lactation Consultants uh, Breastfeeding Conference and with me. I was like, oh, it's in Phoenix. Come. And, you know, so, you know, I have tried to include them. But also, I think that it has been a tremendous learning lesson for them to see. This is the thing I'm most proud of me building a life around my passion, right? Like they know that this is something that I'm very dedicated to. They know how much it means to me. And so because of that, you know, they view it as a team thing, right? And so this is not a job that I hate and I talk about it in disgruntled terms and I'm always an angry person. No, they know that it brings me joy. And so they see themselves as part of that. And I think one of the things I'm proud of as a mother is that I have built a team with my children People always often ask me, how did I do that? And they comment on my children. I really don't know. Maybe I just got really lucky in their temperaments, but I've always included them. It was always a part of them as much as it was a part of me. And so because of that, yes, there have been, you know, kind of makeshift meals. But I also worked really hard when I was present to make sure like I didn't want my children eating bad food because I had to travel. So that meant for me, I was going to be up on Sunday doing that big thing of lasagna or chili or planning the meals. And that was what I was willing to do for the sake of them feeling like, wow, mom had to go, but she tried, right? Sometimes that meant I had to make the call from another city for the delivery, you know, but just to make sure that I always tried, you know, to take care of them and then try to include them in this mission that I was on. And to always, you know, give space for me to just be present and be their mother. Like there are times when I am nothing but their mom and, you know, people will come up to my children and they're like, wow, your mom. And and they're just like, oh, I guess so. But <laughs> she's, she's just our mom. Um, so sometimes even they are like, you know, I'm just their mom. That makes me really happy. I love that. It sounds like you've created such a purpose driven and nurturing role modeling for them. And that was a big thing for me too, is when I'm with my kids, I'm with my kids. And when I'm doing my work, they're included. I can remember one postpartum visit, the mama told me to bring my two girls along and my apprentice brought her daughters along. So we had four little faces at the bottom of the bed watching this whole postpartum exam. And, you know, it's just, it's part of it. And they learn so much about life. Beautiful. Absolutely. What a beautiful gift. For us it is a gift. It's a gift. And I look at Michael someday, he may choose to have a family and he will, he knows more about breastfeeding than any, (laughs) the most young black males his age. Right. And so for me, that's my gift is that I have raised someone who understands birth and can answer questions about breastfeeding and knows that it's important. Like this is, this is a gift because as we know, that doesn't really exist. And I'm proud to see all of our children growing up by bedsides, talking about breasts as feeding tools, which they are, and, you know, and understanding their role and all of that. It's a whole form of intergenerational wealth that we're Mm -hmm. creating. I have one last question for you that I love to ask my guests. If you could tell your younger self anything, give her words of guidance or wisdom, how old would she be and what would you say? I will answer that with a personal story, which is as a child, I had a terrible speech impediment. I struggled with words. And I think that's why I was initially drawn to writing because my words would often fail me. I was teased, you know, it was not a good look for Kimberly. And so I was drawn to writing because that's where I had strength on the page, but not in my spoken voice. And I think when I look at 
the ways that I've been able to be a powerful speaker, something I I take immense pride in because I know my story. So I think I would tell my probably six-year-old self, maybe just about kindergarten, maybe five, that one day you will be a powerful speaker and that you will stand in front of crowds and people will give you standing ovations, not for what you wrote, which I think was always my dream, but for what you said. And so that part, and I'm getting emotional, was something I wish I had known. It's been a delight for me to see this part of myself. And it was something of all the things that I always wanted to do because I wanted to be a writer, but I never saw that type of power for myself. And the fact that I've been able to create that and do that has been something that I wish I had known. <laughs> wow. Thank you for sharing that. Very personal. <sighs> Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for being you and all you bring and you're in powerhouse. I don't need to say it because everyone can hear it and see it and feel it. Thank you for all the work you're doing for mothers, Black mothers. And I'm so grateful and appreciative that you're willing to be here and share with the community. I'm learning so much from you as I go along too. And we will put all the links. If you had one link that you wanted people to really know about today, what would it be? And we'll put all the links below the show notes. Oh, the one link that I would like to share. I think I would like people to listen to the Birthright Podcast and to hear what's possible for Black women. You know, we've talked a lot about what's not going well, but I would love for people to hear Black women sharing their joy around birth. That would be really important to me. The negative stuff, they can get anywhere. It's out there. But I would appreciate for people to tune in to some joyful experiences from Black women and to hear how much it means to them, to hear the fathers and Black men who talk about, you know, their their love of their children and their pride in their wife, their fear for their wife, and to know this is real. And so I would ask that you share that one for the Birthright Podcast website link. That's so beautiful. And what a way to change so many cultural stereotypes that people don't even know that they have to listen to these powerful stories. And I like that you included the stories of Black men and Black fathers. And I can't wait to meet you somewhere in person. And thank you for all you're doing. Thank you for all you are doing. I appreciate this conversation and for including me. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Head over to Kimberly's website, podcast earth app get her book the big letdown get any of her books all of her books obviously everything she does is phenomenal high quality important and culturally shifting i hope you enjoyed this episode that it helped you to feel seen and heard and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, you can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time. <laughs>